Welcome to the film file when Titans clash, or just a film show for film geeks by film geeks. Hello, I'm almost Lee Ford. And I'm definitely Andy Meakin. You weren't sure, though. <laughs> I, I had to think for a second then. You was... did, didn't you? You, <laughs> you threw to... me off. I am, because I'm still not sure I'm Lee Ford this morning, uh, which will be explained uh, in a few minutes. But uh, firstly, now we've decided that you are Andy Meakin. Happy birthday, mate. Cheers, buddy. Uh, yeah, I turned 50 this week at the you big five zero, and yet I still feel like I'm in my mid-20s. It's one of them. It's like when you're in your early 20s, 50 seems so far away. You're like, whoa. I'll die before I'm 50. Now I'm 50. It's like, how did I get here? Where's the years gone? Oh my God. What's happened to my life? I, I love my life. I'm not, I'm not saying that I don't like my life. It's just that it does fly so fast. So all you people out there who are in your twenties, and I know we've got a few listeners looking at the stats who are in their twenties, get ready for it. Cause next thing you know, you'll be as old as I am. Well, you won't be as old as I am. Cause I'll be like 30 years older than what you are when you turn 50, but you get the drift. Uh, but it, it goes past so quick, so don't waste any time with any ideas. Just get on with life and enjoy it to the full. And that's my positive spirit for the day. There you go. Live every day to your fullest potential, I think, is, is exactly. the moral of this week's uh, this week's show. Um, I'm hanging in by a thread. I played a gig last <laughs> night. It wasn't a particularly late finish. Uh, we were off stage by about 9.30. But because of the way that the venue was set out, we couldn't leave until the other band who we were uh, co-headlining with had moved out so we didn't leave until 12ish and then it was a good hour and a bit back so got in about 1:30 and then absolutely just absolutely shattered didn't have a didn't have a great night's sleep just had a, a sort of a, i think a coma <laughs> i think that's what i fell into <laughs> and then woke up and then realized it was far too early and then went back to sleep again and then told Andy I was getting ready to record the show and then dozed off again so um i'm going to just do my best to try and you know give sentences and stuff <laughs> Yeah, most activity that I've had over the past few days because I'm I'm off work. I spent my birthday going in and watching a film and then working because hey, I might as well. I love my job. I don't mind working on my birthday. But yesterday we had a meet up with family and we chose Manchester because some of us are based in Sheffield, some of us are based in Liverpool. That's kind of like the midpoint. It's more because this year there's multiple special birthdays. There's my one turning fifty, my sister's turning forty, me nephews turning twenty one, etc. And so we thought, rather than having multiple gatherings and costing a fortune through the year, we we're just going to have one. And it was a it was a fun afternoon. We uh, met up, went to Cosmo. Uh, I didn't overindulge like I normally do in that place. Easy to do. Usually, I end up regretting everything that I've eaten, but I I balanced it nicely. I had a nice starter. <laughs> By starter, I mean I had an Indian. Um, <laughs> then for my main, I had I had sushi and also Chinese food, and then I kept enough space for desserts once I'd let it settle and treated myself and yeah it was a good afternoon it was good to see all my family because living away from home I only really get to see my little sister uh, who lives close by and I don't see the rest of my extended family all that often so it was lovely to all gather together for that one afternoon and the weather held out it didn't rain it was Manchester and it didn't rain I mean wow that's well, a miracle in itself. It snowed this morning, or it started to try to snow this morning. Oh, well, we're getting the beast from the east, aren't we? Yeah. Uh, and it could come now. We've got a gig out of the way, and you've got your birthday out of the way. I think, you know, nobody likes March particularly. Let it come, let it do its stuff, and then we can move on. Yeah, give, give us the snow. I love snow. I've had this conversation yeah, I do. before, I, haven't I? When I was a kid, I lived in a, in a village, and we had to get a, a coach to school. 
And, and if it snowed, there was absolutely no chance of the coach eventually getting to the village that I lived in, and then even less so getting to uh, getting to school. So it was a giddy feeling when you saw a snow day on the horizon. Uh, I still get that feeling now that uh, I've, I've taken it with me into uh, later years. Don't know whether you've seen this week going around on social media. There's a make your own movie meme, which chooses things like the last digit of your phone number gives you a director. The first digit of your phone number gives you an actor, etc., etc. No, I'm not. <laughs> I checked my one out and worked it out. And I ended up with the genre of superhero movie. Okay, that sounds like you. Subgenre of courtroom drama. So a superhero right. courtroom drama starring Saoirse Ronan. I'm in. Yeah. Tom Hardy. Oh, backing okay. off now. And directed by Zack Snyder. That's okay. it. Tom. I don't. Th- I don't even think Saoirse Ronan can salvage that mess. <laughs> it was so close. It was so close. I was all hopeful right up until it got to Tom Hardy, who I just don't have. I don't understand the love that people have for him. He just does different voices and tries to act. <laughs> put it in uh, put it in our show notes Andy so other people can play this said game I'll provide it somewhere somewhere or other I'll, p- I'll post it on the social feeds this week yeah. uh, but my sister got a psychological dystopian film directed by Spike Lee starring Nicolas Cage and Helena Bonham Carter and I am paying for that yeah, I'm in for that <laughs> Uh, One of my mates got Tarantino directing The Rock and Anya Taylor-Joy in it, and it's a zombie movie. I could see that. My other sister got a sporting whodunit, a sporting whodunit, directed by Spielberg, starring Samuel L. Jackson and Lucy Liu. Some of these combinations are great, but I get Zack Snyder and Tom Hardy. (laughs) It's like it was meant to be. I think whoever created this meme probably listened to the show and went, (laughs) who does Andy hate the most? (laughs) We'll build it around him. A bit of fun. I do like those kind of things. I, I... Take part in them. And I need to give the warning out to people who jump on every meme. Always be careful with these ones that go around saying, like, like stripper name. Name of the street that you lived in and the, your first pet. Yeah. What are two of the questions that your bank asks you when you forget your password? Mm. So always be careful. Now, this one was something that was very sporadically random. So be careful out there with these memes. But have fun with the ones that clearly aren't just data grabs. Talking of being on socials. How did we do last week with our social challenge? We had some responses, uh, some interesting responses. So that we were asking because of Ant-Man coming out and, you know, we're on-screen villains. And so we asked, who's your favourite on-screen villain from movies and what makes them stand out for you? Over on Twitter, we had a, a few responses. We had Harvey Morton. Hi, Harvey. I watched Bones and All for the first time last night and Mark Rylance's character Sully gave me the chills, appearing when you'd least expect it. It created lots of tension. Although, if we're talking all-time favourites, I'd have to say Scar from The Lion King and The Joker. Good choices? Yeah, good choices. We never uh, thought about animated villains. Mm, sometimes they can be the most menacing. Yeah, Cruella de Vil. Stephen Dan 1969 just posted a gift from Schindler's List of Ray Fiennes, saying Ray yep. Fiennes played this part too well. Yes, utterly chilling and drawn from a real person. I know that you put in Mr. Potter from It's a Wonderful Life. Yes, I I thought I'd go uh, sort of left of centre. And uh, Mr. Potter is one of those. He's not redeemed in any way, even by the end of it. He doesn't come together. He doesn't He doesn't get his just desserts like a, a lot of villains do. Mm. He still reigns supreme, but he'll just always forever be tarnished by the fact that he's the meanest man in Bedford Falls. And IMD Bartlett replied with a link to an article that they wrote for Slash Film on the 20 greatest human villains in movie history. Okay. I've retweeted that one on Twitter, so please seek that one out because I read through it and there's some great choices in there. I'm not going to go through them all, but there's one such as Bridget Gregory from The Last Seduction. Alonzo Harris from Training Day. There's one that I've I'd completely forgotten. 
you mentioned John Doe last week. He's made the list there. Hans Lander from Inglorious Bastards. Frank Booth from Blue Velvet. Yeah, yes. Yeah, great. Nurse Ratched, which I believe you mentioned as well last week. Rene Belloc from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Raiders of the Lost Ark, yeah. Hannibal Lecter. There's a great list in here of a variety from different genres and all of them with like the reasoning as to why this person makes a chilling or over-the-top or ridiculously brilliant villain, including, and this would have been my choice once I thought it all through, Norman Stansfield from Leon, played by the ever-excellent Gary Oldman. He's chilling, he's menaced, he's twisted, and he's off his face. And there's an element of humour to him as well. Yeah. You don't know at times whether to sort of laugh at him, at his absurdities, but also be terrified by his 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 drive. But it's a great list. Check check out. I've retweeted it on Twitter. So check out IMD Bartlett's listing um, through his article. See, awesome. if, you, if you've got an article, we'll even plug you on the show. Um, over on Mastodon, on the other hand, T-Subtext said, this is on tape rather than screen, but the audiobook version of Lolita, Jeremy Irons as Humbert Humbert, is a masterfully compelling, profoundly disturbing performance. Irons captures the facile rationalizations of Humbert perfectly. And then goes on to film to say, as for movies, Rutger Hauer as John Ryder in The Hitcher, very much so. Yes, a genuinely chilling portrayal of psychopath. And Robert Duvall as EF in The Apostle from 1997. Ozzy at Macedon World. So many great ones. Killmonger in Black Panther. Casual and scary confidence to the character, not to mention the strength that comes with being right. He feels more like a dramatic villain than a comic book villain. The Psychopath in Angst from 1983. And The Grabber from The Black Phone. I mean, that's a good recent one. Ethan Hawke, behind a mask, was the most disturbing person on screen last year. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these choices aren't the obvious choices for villains. Mm. And and, uh, and I think that's why it's been a success this week. The kind of grounded, real characters. T-Subtext also chipped in with the banjo in Deliverance. All it takes is six notes. Great bit of humour. Love it. Alex A. Pagliuca. Daniel Plainview in There Will Be Blood. Again, another solid, grounded person. Watching a person become consumed by the alchemy of hubris and insecurities as their path to success. Played by Daniel Day-Lewis, cinematic revelation. Travis Bickle, definitely. Yeah, yeah kind of an anti-hero as well, Travis Bickle. He's, he's the villain and the hero of his own story. Uh, as we said, De Niro, Scorsese and Schrader had no clue they were doing it, but hell if they didn't create a perfect warning for where the combination of white grievances and masculinity were going in America. We're seeing a few men a day become Travis Bickles every day and acting like we don't understand how. Uh, Robert Mitchum as Harry Powell in Night of the Hunter. Awesome. Great choice. An amazing film. Classical D threw in. In terms of favourite, I'd have to agree with the shout-outs to Rutger Hauer and Anthony Hopkins, but I'd also like to add Anthony Perkins in Psycho and Gary Oldman in Leon. In terms of who made me ill to my stomach, Adam Baldwin in Radio Flyer. Turns out he really is a terrible person in real life. (laughs) Um, Also, Robert Mitchum. And because I rewatched it recently, Robert Patrick in Terminator 2, Edward Norton in Primal Fear. Oh, that's a good choice. Yeah, that is a good choice. All the way through that film, you're rooting for him. What a great debut. A great debut. Absolutely stunning. Um, Betty Davis in Baby Jane. Yep. So many wonderful ones to choose from. It's also become cliche at this point. Heath Ledger in The Dark Knight. Um, So, yeah, some great results and some... Yeah, you know, some real good food for thought. Thank you for responding, ladies and gentlemen out there. We love getting this feedback on what your opinions are on these different characters. Yes, indeed. Like I say, my one is uh, Stansfield from Leon. Thank you very much. Uh, it's always fun that we get to hear from you. So let's set a question that's going to tax you this week on our social challenge. After giving it much thought, 
after the sad passing of Burt Bacharach, it got me thinking about a theme to a film that just means something special to you. When you hear this one particular theme, it either, uh, you know what to expect, like the Bond theme. It, it, it leaves you awe-inspired Superman the movie theme. Is there a theme that you think is the best signature score for your favourite film? Let us know right here on our socials. Andy, how can they do that? Just follow us on any of the social media channels, Twitter, Mastodon, and just reply to us where we post out the question later in the week. And moving on, let's get on with the show. So what have we got for you on this week's show? We've got a deep dive into William Friedkin's The Exorcist as part of a celebration of Andy's birthday. Yes, what came out in 1973. We've got reviews aplenty, which include Creed 3 that opened at cinemas this weekend, Living, which is available to buy on streaming at the moment and should be available to rent in just over a week. I'll be talking about Luther, The Fallen Son, and we're both going to mention the first episode of The Mandalorian Season 3, which landed on Disney Plus on Wednesday. We've got banter, we've got chat, and we've got the news and the box office. In the segment we fondly like to talk about has just been the news. So last week, Andy, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania shrunk in its box office potential. There was a cocaine bear coming up big, but how does that stand this week? It's all about Creed 3 this weekend. In the US, it opened straight into the top spot with $58.4 million firmly landing a punch and showing that there's life in this franchise yet. Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania is in second place, 12.8 million it took this weekend. Worldwide, it's currently stood at 421 million. It's a very sharp drop-off week on week for the latest MCU film. Cocaine Bear took another 11.1 million to take third place. Demon Slayer Kimetsu no Yaiba is in fourth place with 10.1 million. And Jesus Revolution drops to fifth place this week with 8.5 million. Here in the UK, pretty much more of the same. Creed 3 opened with 5 million this weekend in the UK. It's the strongest opening for the Creed franchise to date. Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania took another 1.4 million to take second place. Puss in Boots is still clawing its way through the box office, taking another 1.2 million. Cocaine Bear is in fourth place, 1.1 million added to its total. And What's Love Got to Do With It drops to fifth place with 845,000. It's done, isn't it? Ant-Man and Wasp is done. Pretty much, yeah. Disappointing because, as I said, uh, uh, I had such a good time with it, and I know you did, uh, and I'm not getting all the hate for it. I can understand the hate for Eternals, even though I don't necessarily agree with it. Yeah. But I, I am I'm genuinely, genuinely surprised on this one. I, I, is it me? I'm not a Marvel shill. We don't get any anything from Marvel. They don't ring us up and go, guys, make sure you give us a good review on the film file. I wish they did. If they'd offer us things, we'd gladly shill for them, but they won't shill. We would never shill anyway. Let's be no, honest. We, 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 We've got integrity. integrity is worn on a t-shirt. I'm wearing my integrity t-shirt right now. I'm wearing my Weird Al one. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> I'll get you an integrity t-shirt. Excellent. <laughs> I'm still mystified that it is done so poorly. Yeah. I mean, it had a strong opening as well, but then it's had the biggest drop-offs that Marvel films have seen. And I don't know, is it the after effect of last year's deluge of substandard Marvel? Could be. That has maybe made people, you know, the only audience that we're getting is that initial weekend of the diehard fans. But your general public are starting to get a bit, you know, a bit cagey about it and stepping away. Guardians of the Galaxy should lift them all up because the one thing that the public love 
is the Guardians of the Galaxy. So the next Marvel film shouldn't suffer this one. But if it does, that's not going to bode well for the future of the MCU. Only time will tell. Anyway, let's talk about some of the news. What have we got in the news, Andy? What's our big story this week? As we're approaching the Oscars in just over a week's time, we've had other awards land this week, and it looks like the expected wins for the Oscars might be going to everything, everywhere, all at once. I've said before that I I was uh, very surprised that it didn't do more at the BAFTAs. The Spirit Awards ran this week, as did the Screen Actors Guild Awards, and Everything Everywhere All at Once did fantastic in both of them. In the Screen Actors Guild, it got the outstanding performance by a whole cast. It got the outstanding performance by female actor in a leading role. It got outstanding performance of female actor in a supporting role. It got male actor in supporting role. It took the key awards. And then the Spirit Awards, it swept the board, taking seven out of its eight nominations, including Best Picture. It also won Best Screenplay, Best Director for the Daniels, along with Best Editing Award. It's safe to say that this is the film that has kind of come from come from kind of nowhere last year. No one really knew what to expect, but it's won everyone's hearts over as it's got closer and closer to awards. And we've been showing it recently at the cinema again during awards season. And we're seeing audiences flocking to it all over again or flocking to it for the first time. This is a true example of why the awards are important because this is a film that yeah. I felt should have done better on its initial release. It did it did good, but I feel that it should have done better. But the awards have brought it to people's attention. And if you're going to be placing bets for the ne- the Oscars next weekend, your top tip is to anywhere that it has everything everywhere all at once, tick those boxes. So we announced that there was going to be a new Hellboy movie. The Crooked Man. And we gave you a little bit of, of what we know about the plot. And I think we, we both speculated as to who was going to play Hellboy. Well, it's been announced this week. Yes, uh, rising star Jack Casey is going to slip on the red makeup to play Hellboy in The Crooked Man for Millennium. The project will begin shooting later this month in Bulgaria. So this is a very quick turnaround. We've gone from no news to over the space of two weeks, we've now got cast. Uh, Casey, to the date, has had small roles in films such as Deadpool 2, Without Remorse, and he also was played the lead in Lionsgate's Dark Web 3301. He's not really someone who you'd recognise, but if you're going to be under that much makeup, maybe that won't be a problem. Uh, the co-president of Millennium said in a statement, Casey is a dynamic actor who has the ability to morph into his roles. His talent and stature are perfect for this younger Hellboy. I was very impressed with him while working together on The Outpost. Also in casting news to do with Hellboy, Jefferson White from Yellowstone and Adeline Rudolph from The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina have both joined the project. Brian Taylor, who directed Crank, is going to direct this film. Original script by creator Mike Mignola and his Dark Horse Comics collaborator Chris Golden. It's going to be interesting because, I mean, it's going to be closer to the the comic story than it's ever been before with Mike Mignola doing the script. I mean, what we do know is the official plot synopsis, which reads, uh, Stranded in 1950s rural Appalachia, Hellboy and a rookie BPRD agent discover a small community haunted by witches led by the Crooked Man a local devil with a troubling connection to Hellboy's past. Uh, it's it's a confusing one. I'd like to have seen David Harbour carry on with the role because I thought he brought a lot to it. But I think I think with, with Hellboy, as long as the actor's got that big personality that you need for the character, then underneath all that makeup, it doesn't matter mm. that much. It's the personality that matters. And, and as I don't know this particular actor who's going to play Hellboy, uh, I've, I've got no opinion. You could see David Harbour and his approach 
to help or in how it was going to work. But um, yeah, colour me optimistic, colour me red optimistic, and we'll see what happens. But so far, uh, not a lot to comment on. And talking of David Harbour, who's best known, of course, for Stranger Things, and it has reported this week that Stranger Things 5 is about to start filming sometime this year. Have you heard about the Stranger Things stage show? Yeah, the, the first shadow, I believe it's called, isn't it? That's right. It's a prequel and it's coming to London later this year. Uh, of course, there's been other stage adaptations of movies. I think for interesting, this is the first time there's been a, a TV show. So this is kind of interesting. Uh, a prequel play penned by Kate Teffrey from a story she penned with the Duffer brothers uh, and the writer of almost everything that's out now, uh, Jack Thorne. And with Billy Elliot and the readers, Stephen Daldry, set to direct. All I can tell you is it's set in Hawkins, Indiana, in 1959. The play will feature a younger versions of some fan favourite characters from the show. A young Jim Hopper's car won't start. Bob Newby's sister won't take his radio show seriously. And Joyce Meldano just wants to graduate and get the hell out of town. When new student Henry Creel arrives, his family finds that a fresh start isn't so easy and the shadows of the past have a very long reach. So it sounds like Stranger Things. I know that in the official blurb for it, they've said that this new adventure will take you right back to the beginning of the Stranger Things story and may hold the key to the end. So it sounds like it's not just something done as a one-off spin-off to you know, completely be separate. It's done to be part of the whole creative story of the Stranger Things tale in time for people to flock down, pay all the money to go and watch it before um, we finally get the final season of Stranger Things. I wouldn't be surprised if just before it returns to the screens next year that this stage show gets a screening on Netflix mm. in a Hamilton kind of way. Here's something that got me excited. Now, we know that the Penguin series has been in development for HBO Max, which is going to follow the rise of the Penguin within the new underworld that has been left vacated after Carmine Falcone was killed in The Batman. Well, one of the key names that was name-dropped in The Batman was crime boss Salvatore Maroni, who Falcone had set up and was locked behind bars as a result. Clancy Brown has joined the cast oh, as the Salvatore great. Maroney. The great Clancy Brown. The great Clancy Brown. The Penguin series will take place days after the events of the film and will play out the power struggle as the death of Falcone has opened Gotham up to multiple mob bosses and gives Penguin a chance to rise through the ranks while Sophia Falcone tries to take direct control of herself. With Falcone's betrayal exposed, it likely casts doubt on the evidence that shut Maroney away, which probably explains how he's going to become an important character in this series. I'm all over this like a rash. I can't wait. And having Clancy Brown in there is just one more reason. Isn't it official now that when you talk about Clancy Brown, you have to say the great Clancy Brown? The great Clancy Brown? There's no other like him because there can be only one. Sorry, I had to, I had to throw a Kurgan reference in there. Yeah. <laughs> And why not? And also in DC News, Doug Bradley, who's best known for playing Pinhead in the original Hellraiser franchise, is going to take on the role of DC Comics villain Joe Chill in the CW's Gotham Knights series. Chill is the character in the comics who cruelly gunned down Bruce Wayne's parents, and he's scheduled to be executed after 50 years of rotting on death row, but he won't go quietly, is all that we know about what his inclusion in the Gotham Knights is. Before we get on to any Marvel news, I'm sure there is some, uh, Craven the Hunter star, Aaron Taylor-Johnson, has joined the ever-growing cast of Nosferatu. Production has already commenced on Robert Eggers' highly anticipated Nosferatu film, which is based on the 1922 silent film. 
Aaron Taylor-Johnson, who I've always got some time for, even in films that I don't quite get, Tenet, I'm looking at you, he always becomes a character. I mean, he was pretty much unrecognisable in Tenet, but he's joined the cast alongside the previously announced Bill Skarsgård, Nicholas Holt, Lily Rose Depp, Emma Corrin, Willem Dafoe, Simon McBurney, and Ralph Inson. I mean, this is just a great list of names. The film is a gothic tale of obsession between a haunted young woman in the 19th century Germany and an ancient Transylvanian vampire who stalks her. And with Eggers directing, knowing what his directorial style has been through the years, this is the perfect project for him. This has been a long gestating passion project for him. And this is now a passion project for me to watch on the screen. Hey, Andy. Hey, Lee. You had a lot of love for Detective Pikachu, didn't you? Oh, I did. So you'll be so happy that a new writer and director has been found for Detective Pikachu 2. It depends. Who's been found? Originally attached was Sonic the Hedgehog's Oren Uzel, but now it's reported that Chris Galletta is currently penning the script. His past credits include co-creating, writing and exec producing Portlandia, which is a series that I've I've never seen, and uh, co-creating and directing a basket starring Zach Galifianakis. And Portlandia co-creator Jonathan Crisell is in talks to direct Detective Pikachu 2. I'm not familiar with Portlandia. No, I, I've saw one. It was a very bizarre, surrealist comedy. I remain optimistic about it because I do want to be optimistic. I really enjoyed that first Detective Pikachu film. And whilst the ending of that kind of makes you go, well, how can that continue with Detective Pikachu? I'm sure they'll find a way. After all, this is a fictional universe. You can do what you want. And though it's not confirmed yet, Andy, uh, Ryan Reynolds is believed will have some part to play in the upcoming sequel. I mean, he has to. He's the voice of Detective Pikachu. Speaking of fictional universes, but this time one that I'm still baffled it's still going, let's head over to the Sony Spider-Man universe to get some latest news. So Sydney Sweeney has reportedly been cast as Spider-Woman for the, well, I, I was going to say hotly anticipated, but what's the complete opposite to hotly anticipated? Uh, not, just not anticipated, coldly. <laughs> Madam Web film, but we don't know which version of Spider-Woman this character's going to be. The biggest suggestion is the Julia Carpenter version from previous rumours. And Madam Web will serve as an origin story for Madam Web, a clairvoyant character whose psychic abilities allow her to see within the spider world itself. Further story details are under wraps, probably because they've not written them yet, because this is the Sony Spider-Man universe and you just throw <laughs> stuff at a wall and see what sticks. And it's part of the universe that includes the great hits of Venom, Morbius, and the upcoming Craven the Botanist. I mean, Craven the Hunter. Hey, which we've still not seen a teaser trailer for. Yeah, I'm not even sure Adam Taylor-Johnson can save that mess, but... I don't want to be negative all the time, but when your history is a churning out of films that are lacklustre, substandard, and don't actually get any aspect of what the comics are correct, you don't instill me with confidence. S.J. Clarkson is directing Madam Web, while Matt Sazama and Burke Sharpless pens the screenplay. Filming took place last year, over the back half of last year, and it's set to be released February the 16th next year, so we've still got a year before it's actually done, even though we've finished shooting. I'm not convinced. Sticking close to Marvel, Universal could be considering selling the film rights to the Hulk and Namor back to Disney. Isn't this tied in with the uh, Hulu distribution rights that we discussed on the show a few weeks ago, where Disney have the option to buy out the remaining 33% of shares next year, but they don't necessarily need to do that, and it could be sold elsewhere. And one of the options is doing a trade deal using shares from the Hulu setup to get Universal to free up the Hulk rights. That's right. 
So uh, wait and see. It's all in the hands of uh, the bean counters and the business people. So it's not even about the creativity of it all. So we'll just have to stand by. It's all on the finances. Uh, Shang-Chi duo Simu Liu and Aquafina are going to join John Cena in filmmaker Paul Feig's new action comedy, Grand Death Motto, for Amazon Studios. Filming starts next week in California, and Feig is directing from a screenplay set in a financially stricken California in the near future, where residents are allowed to kill the winner of the state's lottery before sundown in order to claim the prize. Newly arrived in Los Angeles, lottery winner Katie, played by Aquafina, must join forces with amateur jackpot protector Noel, played by Cena, to make it to sundown in order to legally claim her multi-billion dollar prize. I like the concept. Yeah. I like the cast. Paul Feig never, never lands for me. He was great on TV. I mean, Freaks and Geeks is one of my all-time beloved series, which he was a, a co-creator of. I recently re-watched the Ghostbusters movies he did, and I watched it with the child, who, who was more entertained than I was, but it, it's not a great film. This is basically one that the concept and the cast alone will be the only reason that will get me gravitating towards it. There's always something in a Feig film that just about scrapes it through from being mediocre to, okay, it wasn't a wasted experience. But I don't think he's ever quite hit a home run for me. Maybe this will be the one. I don't know. Because Cena has really, like, he's gelled for me in comic roles. Yeah, I think Peacemaker was uh, was a big shot in the arm, on a big arms he's got as well, uh, to seeing him as a comedic actor. And I see more as a comedic actor than I do as a, uh, a, a straight leading man. Yeah, whereas Batista, I think, can toe that line between both quite well. I think Cena is perfectly suited for the comedic action heroes kind of yeah. approach. The cast has been filled out for Fede Alvarez's new standalone alien film for 20th Century Studios. Yeah, uh, Isabel Merced heads for Alvarez's alien film, the latest in the franchise. We know very little about it. And it seems to be a little bit on the quiet, quiet, because this is moving along nicely by the looks of things. Yes, filming is set for a March the 9th start date in Budapest. Alvarez working from a script he co-wrote with his frequent collaborator, Rodo Saegas. All that we know about the film is that it begins on a distant colony as a group of young people find themselves in a fight for their lives with the xenomorph. How many and what type isn't clear at this time. And also alongside Isabella Merced, there's uh, David Johnson from Industry, Archie Renault from Shadow and Bone, Spike Fern from The Batman and Eileen Wu, who are going to be joining alongside the previously announced Kaylee Spaney from Mare of Town. And what we do know is that Ridley Scott is overlording as producer on this project. And it's plans to debut on Hulu and Disney Plus the same way that Dan Trachtenberg's Prey did last year because I really think that's the great way to relaunch these, shall we say, done-to-death franchises that you yeah, thought there yeah, was no hope you for. Can, you can easily say that because they, they've been played out and, and what we found, at least with Predator Stroke Prey, is it just breathed new life into it. I'm all for it. Looking forward to seeing what they deliver. I do like Alvarez as a director. Yeah, I think he, I think he's strong. I mean, he knows he's, he's got his horror roots, so I'm assuming this will, and, and, and of course this is pure speculation that these these horror roots will will shine through on this movie yeah take it back to the sort of the glory days of being a haunted house movie in space and sticking with horror james wan's atomic monster and jason blum's blumhouse productions are working on a film adaptation of the hit video game dead by daylight have you ever played dead by daylight i have yeah the thing about this as a film is that this is inspired by films the game is inspired by films it's you've got survivors versus whatever the monster is so 
with the Dead by Daylight, it's tapped into all the different things via expansion packs. So there's been Halloween expansions, Nightmare on Elm Street, Strange Things. But it's basically teenagers in a cabin in a woods or a camp being stalked by a killer and they have to survive. And it's a great little fun experience. I'm not sure how they're going to make this into a film without it just being, you know, Friday the 13th. Yeah, I mean, they've got to do some clever scripting ideas to either become quite meta or pay homage to that kind of horror movie. Given how many of these old franchises as well Blumhouse have their hands on, it's highly possible they may have direct references to quite a few of them to really pay homage to how the game works. The only difference that the game has over like your typical films is that the killer in the games must impale each survivor on sacrificial hooks to appease a malevolent force known as the Entity. And the survivors have to avoid, avoid being caught and powered up the exit gates by working together to fix five generators. So there's a bit more than just it. But it is a game that purely draws on love of that genre. And you know what? Given the fact that Blumhouse always keep the budgets low and just go for the thrills, this could really work on the big screen. Searchlight Pictures is in the midst of a deal to adapt the Oscar-nominated documentary feature Fire of Love into a narrative feature. Have, have you got around to watching Fire of Love yet? I haven't. I, I know enough about it to think why why does it have to be a feature when the documentary tells the story so well i thoroughly recommend to everyone jump onto disney plus and watch fire of love it's a great documentary because it's taken from footage that this couple who fell in love over their fascination with volcanoes and spent the life volcano chasing basically going around different parts of the world and putting themselves in dangerous situations and it's a beautiful documentary about love life in the face of danger we don't need a narrative version because every part of their story was told on screen anyway but it's getting a lot of buzz so obviously someone wants to adapt it the narrative version will deal heavily with the love story between the pair and how the pair's pursuit of what they love led to them paying the ultimate price in 1991 the june prequel tv series at hbo max the sisterhood has uh, hit a stumbling block several months into production. Yes, well, I saw this. And it's now apparently on hold. Johan Renk, who gave us Chernobyl, was originally signed on to direct the first two episodes of it, but he's exited the project with a search underway now for his replacement. In addition, the show's creator, Diane Ademujan, who had written the pilot script, is stepping down as co-showrunner, which leaves only TV writer-producer Alison Shapka as the sole showrunner of the series. And that's not all, because actress Shirley Henderson who had been tapped as one of the leads, has now stepped away from the project as well, with her role as Tula Harkonnen being recast. According to the trade, Renk's auteur approach and desire for a visual look akin to Villeneuve's films didn't mix well with HBO Max's vision for the series, which led to his departure. It's not clear if any of the footage he filmed is ever going to be used, and it might just be a complete scrap it and start again. It has been suggested by... Uh, the production studio that they were always going to stop for the winter months but other sources indicate that this stoppage is going to be for up to seven months to give Shapka and her team time to put their new creative stamp on it reworking the scripts as well as finding a new director it doesn't bode well for the project which I was very excited for but now I'm starting to get a bit skeptical about now Renk leaving that might be related to this next news which He's now attached himself to Amazon's new adaptation 
of a multi-series version of John Wyndham's iconic novel, The Day of the Triffids. Now, that colours me interested. I'm One of my all-time favourite books, I read it as a kid, scared me to death. I remember the old 1950s version, which again terrified me. There was the TV version, which was pretty accurate to the book from the 80s. And then there was the more recent version with Dougray Scott in it, which was also pretty good. It tells a story very, very well. It was less faithful to the book, but it was a decent modern interpretation of it. Yeah, yeah. I'm the same as you. I've always loved this. My first introduction to the Day of the Triffids was that BBC 1981 miniseries. And that got me reading the book and then seeking out the older 1962 film. And I've always loved that story. This is a, a story that also inspired the opening for 28 Days Later, according to Danny Boyle. Yes. Another adaptation for a new era. I could see that. And with Amazon's kind of production style and production budget, could really do it some justice. Uh, did you see Netflix's first look photos and little teaser for Schwarzenegger's first TV series role? I, I didn't see it, but I... I was all over it, and um, it seems a natural path for Schwarzenegger to go down. Finally, a TV series route. The show is called Fubar, and it comes from Reacher and Scorpion creator, creator Nick Santora, following a CIA operative, played by Schwarzenegger, on the verge of retirement when he discovers a family secret. Turns out his entire relationship with his daughter was built on a lie, as she's also a CIA operative. Schwarzenegger said in a statement, Everywhere I go, people ask me when I'm going to do another big action comedy like True Lies. Well, here it is. Fubar will kick your ass and make you laugh. And not just for two hours, you get a whole season. And even the plot synopsis is very true lies as well, isn't it? Yeah. I think it's a, it's a great avenue. And I know we've seen it with a, a lot of, and I use the, the word lightly, aging stars. Um, we've seen people like Harrison Ford move into TV, Kevin Costner move into TV, Sylvester Stallone. Uh, and with the quality of TV now, and also the what what TV can do budget wise, I think this is a, a a perfect avenue for people for for a lot of the guys who uh, we admired in the eighties. Yeah, and uh, mark the date of April the eighteenth. Oh, well, get some money right. saved because the four K restored five film box set of the Christopher Reeve Superman films is coming your way. Yes, I saw that, which includes, and I watched it recently, uh, the Donner cut of Superman yes. two. So I'm tempted just for that. I do it have it on Blu-ray. Uh, and funny enough, watched it only a week ago and just thought, you know, if they are going to re-release it, could they just sparkle up some of the effects work on it? It's going to be available only as a combo pack on 4K Ultra HD disc with Superman the Movie, Superman 2, The Donner Cut, Superman 3, and Superman 4, Quest for Peace. So consider it that you're buying Superman 1 and 2 and The Donner Cut, and you're getting the other two thrown in as a bundle. Yeah, that's the way I'd see it, which would never, ever get watched. <laughs> There's loads of extras. Um, even the box sets so far have always had a load of extras, including some of the Fleischer cartoons are going to be in there, yeah, and all that. the commentaries. Superman 4, Quest for Peace is worth watching with the commentary. Because it's from the writer of the script who points out every problem that was a result of them changing his script after he'd let go of it. Interesting, fascinating failure. But this is a box set that, you know, I'm going to be buying on day yes. one. Uh, and if uh, I don't get around to buying, if somebody wants to do that for me, I, I, I'll take gifts. That's about it for the news. Except for we need to do an update from the sad news that we revealed last week. Yes. Yeah, so we mentioned last week about uh, Tom Sizemore. Uh, and. Sadly, that there hasn't been a happy ending because Tom Sizemore passed away at the age of 61 just a couple of days ago. Uh, and it is a sad passing. For, for one thing, I, I can't believe 
that he was 61. Um, mm. he's, it's, it's no age when somebody passes away. Uh, that is just nowadays that's middle-aged uh, and leaves an, an amazing body of work behind him, and, in, including, uh, and I think Andy's going to agree, some of our favourite geek movies. Yeah, he was a complicated and sometimes controversial man with a history of substance, substance abuse and legal issues, but there was no denying the talent he showed on screen from earlier roles such as in Born on the Fourth of July, Blue Steel, and the uncredited cameo in Point Break, to the breakout moments in the 90s of True Romance, Wyatt Earp, Natural Born Killers, Strange Days, and Saving Private Ryan. He became a regular fixture in films over the past few decades, even if many of his choices over the past 10 years were low-budget schlock. But he was always a formidable presence within them. Yeah, it always brought his A game, even to lesser lesser products. But it's the good stuff that you've got to remember him about. And, and I'm glad you mentioned Strange Days because he, he was absolutely a screen presence. When you're up against someone like uh, Ray Fiennes to, to try and dominate, to dominate the screen, he did it so well. Yes. He suffered a brain aneurysm on February the 18th. The doctors recommended to his family an end-of-life decision should be made on February the 27th, and he passed away March the 3rd, age 61. Our hearts go out to his family, friends, and everyone else in the film fan community out there who has a favourite Tom Sizemore moment on film. And that's this week's The News. So you're listening to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. And we believe, because we've got spies everywhere, that some of you (laughs) haven't subscribed to the show. Did you know that, Andy? Have you heard? I know who those people are. We've tracked you down. We've reversed the IP. I'm stunned. I'm disgusted. But you can make us feel better. You can rectify that mistake. All you have to do is go onto whatever platform you use for your podcasts. Search for Film File. Spot our logo. There we are. Click subscribe and give us a like. Give us a thumbs up. Yeah, leave a review. Let us know what you think. Get in touch with us. You can do that as well through a multitude of means. Over on social media channels, just search for Film File UK. You'll find us pretty much present on the majority of the known social media channels. Or if you don't do social media and you want to get in touch with us anyway, we do have an email address, podcast at filmfile.uk. Send us over any thoughts, suggestions, feedback, responses to our questions of the week, whatever you want to speak to us about, film-related, entertainment-related, even a video game that you've been playing that you think that we should check out because it might make one of our neat things. Fire us an email over. We'd love to hear from you. Remember, go team Filmfile. And you can also find us on No Barriers Radio every week on Thursday at 8 o'clock for the radio edition of The Film File. And now it's time for this week's Deep Dive. Dive, dive, dive. This week, we're going to be talking about the 1973 and a number which is significant to my friend and co-host Andy Meakin as it was the year of his birth, because we're going to be talking about William Friedkin's horror classic, The Exorcist. Father Karras. It's an honor to meet you. I believe we should begin now. I think it might be helpful if I gave you some background on the different personalities Reagan has manifested. So far, I'd say there seem to be three. She's convinced... There is only one. Especially important is the warning to avoid conversations with the demon. We may ask what is relevant, but anything beyond that is dangerous. He will lie to confuse us, but he will also mix lies with the truth. The attack is psychological and powerful. 
Based on the 1971 novel by William Peter Blatty, who wrote the screenplay. The film stars Ellen Bernstein, Max von Sydow, Lee J. Cobb, Jason Miller and Linda Blair. It follows the story of a young girl and a demonic possession and her mother's attempt to rescue her through an exorcism conducted by two Catholic priests. The book was an international bestseller. And the film has been reviled as one of the greatest horror films of all time. In fact, film critic Mark Commode, to him, it's the best film of all time. It's a film that even with mixed reviews found an audience. And this is one of those films that everybody was talking about. It became the first horror film to be nominated for an Academy Award for Best Picture. And it was nominated and won for Best Adapted Screenplay and Sound. It's had several sequels. And it's the highest grossing R-rated horror film until 2017's release of It. The Exorcist is part of popular culture. And it's a film that when I first saw it, frightened me to death. So much so that it took me at least 10 years to be able to watch it again. And Andy, it did come out on a more happier note in the year of your birth. Yeah, it's a, it's a great film to share my year of birth with. However, there was a period in my life where I didn't think it was a great film. My first experience of watching this, I must have been about 19 during my student days. Uh, the local flea pit cinema in town ran a special one-off midnight screening of it. And I'd heard for years, I knew of moments of this film. I'd heard it so much said about it, how it's the scariest film ever made and so on and so forth. And so I'm sat in a crowded theatre in anticipation of finally getting round to watch this much heralded horror film. And by the time the end credits rolled, I, I wondered whether there was two films named The Exorcist and I'd chosen the wrong one because it did nothing for me on that first viewing. It left me feeling a little flat, to be honest. And so it then took me about two decades before I finally decided to give it a second shot. And it became one of the films that has become my reason why you should always give something another chance because I'd clearly had it overhyped for me when I first went to see it. And I was expecting a horror that would sit alongside the modern horrors of the era, like your Nightmare on Elm Street series, etc. But it wasn't that at all. It was a completely different thing to what people were telling me it should be. So when I rewatched it again, man, I came away from it understanding the love that people have for it. It still didn't feel like a perfect film for me, but I understood more about why it was highly regarded, the impact that it had at the era that it came out. If you're deeply religious, the aspects of the story will no doubt terrify and shock you. And why it became so, so influential in the whole genre of horror that followed for decades to come. And then this week, I've watched the extended version. To which, Andy, as we were talking about this week's show in advance, I didn't know there was an extended version. It's interesting that you point out that this film didn't hit you at first. And I think a lot of modern audiences... Uh, have felt the same. They've gone into The Exorcist feeling that though it's it's got this huge reputation and, and it is a film which is a, a slow burn that a lot doesn't happen. It's more of a, a drip feed of horrific elements but a lot doesn't happen until sort of the last act when it becomes iconic. But that's not to say that it's a dull film. It just works horror in a very, very meticulous way. It deals with the minutiae of character development and the horrors that these two women, or a woman and a girl, are going through, and that's Ellen Burstein and uh, Linda Blair. And as we found out more about 
their relationships and how that relationship is broken down. And as I said, this film hit me hard. I saw it, I, I think I saw it a little bit too young. I think I was about 15 or 16. And and I and all of everything that Linda Blair went through, I was scared because I thought this is just an innocent little girl and I've done things that mm. normal kids do. Could, could this happen to me? And that element sat inside my brain and terrified me throughout this film. So much so that I didn't watch it for an awful long time. But I do get that modern audiences have found this a harder watch based on the fact that it's it, it's, it's almost a legend of a film and then find yeah. that it's not the kind of horror film that they, they've, they've come to expect. Now, like you say, it's a very slow burn and it's a character study and it's very much a character study of people around the issue of faith. You've got Ellen Bernstein's character states at a couple of points that she's not religious. She has no faith. She doesn't see this as a possession to start with. It's just an illness. And the doctors as well agree with her, this psychological condition, etc. So it's hard for her to come to terms with the fact that her child has got a demonic presence. Then you've got two priests, a younger one and an older one. One of them who's struggling with faith after the loss of his mother and the other one who's who's close to dying and is starting to question his own faith and his own experiences. And it's all about this experience convincing each of them to some degree that their faith needs to be placed in the right place. And it's slow paced and there's loads of dialogue. The dialogue is so well scripted and it's so natural and flowing. And it's because it's so slow burner and because it's so subtle in the way that it does it. There's no giant explosions. There's no big like ooh-ah that when Reagan has a quick split second outburst of obscenities, it shocks because here's what should be an innocent 12-year-old girl suddenly speaking in a strange, guttural, demonic voice with laying other sounds on it. And then it just quickly goes back to just talking and dialogue again. So it catches you off guard. It throws you. You jump. You're startled by it. You're shocked by it. And then swiftly you're having to concentrate on the dialogue exchanges again. And it plays with you for that first two acts. It plays with you in this way before it finally gets to the now iconic exorcism scene itself. And that's when it becomes more about the horror, more about the terror, more about the turning heads and scratching skins. Uh, and, and part of that reason that it's got a, a very realistic approach in the way that it's directed. It's directed by William Friedkin, who was hot off the back of the French Connection. Even though he wasn't the first choice, Warner's uh, had initially approached Arthur Penn. Uh, Mike Nichols and even Stanley Kubrick to direct. They finally settled on Mark Rydell, but Blatty insisted on Freaking, who had been impressed by the French connection. He also knew that uh, Freaking, who had critiqued his Darling Lily screenplay once over lunch, would get the documentary realism to an incredible story. And he knew that he was going. there was going to be an honesty about it. And, and that's what works. It's a no-nonsense looking film. In fact, one director who had been uh, eyed for the role wanted to set the whole film in Salem, Massachusetts. But it's the fact that we recognize this world. And it's that, that horror that comes out of looking out of your window and seeing everyday life and that the supernatural exists within a, a modern New York. Freakin's approach to direction did cause some clashes on set. I mean, we know that from reports that he clashed with Jason Miller a few times, once when the vomit tubing misfired and sprayed Miller in the face as opposed to the chest where it should have gone. And that shot remained in as the shock and disgust was authentic. And there was another time when Friedkin fired a gun near to Miller's ear to get an authentic reaction. And Miller angrily exclaimed that he was an actor and didn't need a gun in order to act. But also the set itself, in order to 
capture the chills literally and make it look like you know you could see the breath coming from their mouths it was a cold box so they were filming in sub-zero conditions inside this set linda blair's screaming when the bed was getting bounced around was genuine because she was completely caught off guard by most of it. William O'Malley recalled that William Friedkin slapped him prior to shooting on the final scene and causing his hand to tremble while blessing Father Karras. And Ellen Bernstein mentions that her scream and facial reaction after being slapped by Regan were due to the harness pulling her far too hard. Basically, your cast suffered for what you see on screen and it works. It works so well as a result because every response, this is similar to like how in Alien, some of the responses were real because no one knew what was actually going to happen. This is that kind of filmmaking. Freaking might have rubbed some people up the wrong way, but his artistic decisions clearly paid off on the final film. Uh, it's a great cast, as, as we've mentioned earlier. Ellen Bernstein, who again, wasn't the original choice. Jane Fonda was considered for it, but she didn't like the material. Audrey Hepburn said she'd take the role if the film could have been shot in Rome. And Bancroft was up for the part, but she was uh, pregnant and the production couldn't wait for nine months. And ultimately, Ellen Bernstein, who gives a fantastic performance, was cast. For the male leads, the studio wanted big name stars. Marlon Brando was suggested, as was uh, Jack Nicholson. Initially, Blatty hired Stacey Keach, but they decided to go for non-A-listers and went with the unknown Jason Miller who had been talked about after a performance of his play, The Championship Season, and also the great Max von Sydow. Over the years, this film built up a reputation. It built up, it built up a legacy, not only with a wave of ever-declining sequels of itself, but also it inspired, well, it inspired the horror genre to be taken with a bit more credibility, which resulted in films such as films that we love, like The Omen, getting made. The Omen would never have been made were it not for this film set in the marker. And it's been parodied, and it's been spoken about, it's been discussed, it's been documentaried. And one of the things about the film itself that was documentaried for so long was the cut scenes. This was one of the first films that people got obsessed over scenes that we never saw. And in this case, it was the spider walk down the stairs scene that had kind of become almost a legend. Did it exist? Did it not? And we got to see it for ourselves in a rejig of the film in the year 2000. So, yes, I, as I said, I didn't know this film existed, but you managed to catch it the other day. I knew there was a director's cut, which had got the infamous Spider-War scene in, uh, which came out uh, and did a cinema run, but I didn't know there was... Uh... It's referred to as the version you've never seen. The Exorcist, the version you've never seen, adds approximately 12 minutes more footage back into the film. Some alternate scenes, some alternate takes... It takes a few of the other scenes out the way. And it, as well as the inclusion of the infamous spider walk, which is very sudden, just comes out of nowhere. And again, another one of those like talking, 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 shock, talking, talking, talking kind of approaches. It also rejigs some of the sound because the sound mix on its original release didn't, you know, there was no such thing as 5-1 and 7-1 stereo, stereoscopic surround sound back then in cinemas. So it's got a rejigged sound including layering in some more sound effects. The small touches of CGI work done on some of the effects work to make it cleaner, almost unnoticeable, but there's just little sparks every now and then that you go, oh, that's new. Oh, that's new. And for me, I think it make, helps the film play better. It helps the film stand up in a, for a more modern audience. You said earlier on that modern audiences, when comparing this yeah. to a more modern horror, it doesn't quite live up to what your expectations are. I think this version is the one for modern audiences. And 
this is the one that has turned it into a five-star film for me because I got to explore it. I got to appreciate it without being thrown out of it by some old effects that don't work. Everything in this is cleaned up. Everything is given a new remix. The sound, the music is like cleaner, crisper, sharper. And it was a great watch. I was absolutely engrossed with it again. And I can't wait to revisit this film again and again and again now. This is a film that I hated on first watch that now has become one of my favourite films of all time. That is the power of a good film that can turn you round when you're in the right frame of mind to actually appreciate what's going on. I mean, this is a film that's got a legacy. This is a film that, uh, again, and I, I put it down to the sort of the realistic nature of it. It's almost the, and it's been said previously, that it did for horror, which 2001 did for science fiction. It legitimised it in the eyes of audiences who previously considered horror movies to be nothing more than a few scares and, and a bit of a laugh. Mm. Uh, and it paved the way around that time for movies like The Omen and Burnt Offerings and Audrey Rose and the Amityville Horror and uh, and even, to some extent, I would have to say, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Of course, the film, because it was such a huge international success, meant that there had to be a sequel. And we got, several years later, The Exorcist to The Heretic, which is best avoided at any cost. Directed by John Borman, Blatty uh, was still in court with the studio over money owed in addition to the 20 million he'd reportedly already received and uh, was dissatisfied with the share of profit only agreed to produce. Linda Blair returned. Uh, John Borman, who had turned down the original as negative and destructive, directed and considered the sequel to be a healthy comparison and cast Richard Burton in the lead role. It's a bit of a mess of a film. Uh, doesn't know what it wants to do. It was cut uh, and then recut and then came out as being one of the most horrible films that I think you'll have a chance to see. Over the past decade, we had that decent but short-lived TV series. Very good show. Managed two seasons, but never found its audience, which was a shame because it was doing a really good retelling of the story and giving its own feel and own reason. And this year, in October, Blumhouse and David Gordon Green are bringing a new direct legacy sequel to the film, with Bernstein reprising her role from that first film. I'm intrigued with this. I'm hoping it can deliver on the legacy sequel kind of effect. But one thing's for certain is that even if it does turn out to be a stinker, it won't damage the original film from being the excellent, powerful, and really shockingly hard-hitting film that it still is today. I also got to point out that what you must get to see, especially if you can get the uh, director's cut, is The Incredible, The Exorcist 3, which is uh, was originally known as Legion, based on the novel by William Peter Blatty. It's not really an Exorcist sequel, though it was something that the studio insisted, but it is one fantastic and horrific film and well worth seeing. I point out that there is a recut director's version but a lot of the scenes are taken from substandard copies but it is in its own right well worth seeing interesting and worth seeing in their own right are the exorcist the beginning and dominion exactly the same film by two different directors which is worth the time just to discuss at some other point because what went off there is an in, incredibly strange moment in film history but as andy said you cannot take away that this is an all-time, absolutely all-time classic horror movie. And Andy, uh, you mentioned the uh, updated version. Where can we find this film? You can rent it at the moment on all streaming services, or you can buy the DVDs, Blu-rays. 
I picked this one up on rental from Amazon, which is where they've got both versions of them available, the standard version and this remastered version you've never seen. If you've never watched The Exorcist, I'd probably recommend watching the version you've not seen because I think it lands better for the new audience. If you're a fan of the original, you'll probably enjoy the original a lot more. And we'll be with you again for another deep dive next week. So, okay, let's get on with some reviews. Andy, what have you got first? Socking a punch into the ring is Creed 3. Adonis Creed. It was like brothers. We all know what it's like. Spend half your life in a cell watching somebody else live your life. What's that supposed to mean? I'm coming for everything. Let's do it. One fight. You and me? Right. Run it. Did you hear me yet? Three films in, and whilst the last two films were clearly legacy continuations of Rocky, the series is now allowed to breathe and gain merit on its own back, as Stallone has zero involvement, and his character has become naught more than a passing reference. In addition, the lead star has stepped behind the camera to direct this time, making this a more personal entry for him. The result is perhaps the best of the trilogy, and whilst it covers many tropes we've seen before, it also manages to feel fresh and original, due to the manner in which it tells the tale. Adonis has retired from fighting. He now spends his days running the Delphi Boxing Academy, alongside coach Tony Little Duke Evers Jr., and promoting the new upcoming fighters. With his life with his family being the most important thing to him, he finds that the sins of the past catch up with him when an old friend, Damien Diamond Dame Anderson, reconnects. Dame was a promising boxer before landing himself in jail. And now he's free again. Adonis, through guilt over events that occurred, sets him up with work. But Dame also wishes to return to boxing. And when opportunity arises, Adonis risks all that he has built to make amends for his past indiscretions for his old friend. Creed three certainly plays the tropes of the genre, which this franchise and the rocky one that preceded it, have firmly established, and yet it still manages to feel like something fresh and creative at the same time. As we've come to expect and love from this series, the key focus is on the personal lives and not the actual boxing, and this film delivers more than adequately on this. Adonis is so far removed from his humble beginnings that the reminder of his youth impacts him not only professionally, but throughout his personal life. Dame, on the other hand, has been seemingly humbled by his experiences, but what he shows on the exterior is only a mask for the anger he contains within. Both characters, and indeed those around him, are fleshed out by reflections of their past and turn from simple archetypes to more nuanced representations. Of course, the casting really makes this work. We already know how good the main cast are, having seen them play in the previous films. Jordan is a strong central performer, and particularly in the interactions with his family, Tessa Thompson as Bianca and Myla Davis-Kent as Amara, their hearing-impaired daughter, it becomes a fully realised breathing character. The inclusion of American Sign Language in the communications when Amara is around feels so fluid and natural, cementing this trio as a family unit who've lived with this for years. But it's through Jonathan Majors as Dane that the film really comes to life. A layered and complicated antagonist, broken by his years in the system, He's easy to root for, but equally easy to dislike. Majors, as we've come to expect from the last few years of appearances, delivers a standout performance from the start, and indeed has a physicality in the fight scenes that is striking. The fights themselves are amongst the best in the long-running series of films, with the impact of every blow being felt, and creative choices in presentation working to infuse them with an energy that feels utterly fresh. One particular creative choice in the final fight serves to make the whole fight purely about the two old friends, eliminating everything else. This is personal. Jordan, in these moments, and indeed in the non-fight aspects, showcases a directorial talent for a first-timer that many long-term directors are still to attain. 
Creed 3 ticks all the boxes you would expect from a Rocky film. And the absence of Stallone isn't noticed. This is no longer his story. Of course, we have the training montage, but around it, everything else that could have been seen as overplayed by now instead feels original once more. So this week at the box office, we've got Jonathan Majors in the top three of... Uh, I mean, he's just dominating everything, isn't he now? He is he's taking the, over the world. He's just the, the, the guy to watch. What else have we got, Andy? I missed it when it was at the, bo- at the box office the back end of last year. It's up for an Oscar for Bill Nighy, and that's Living. Small wonder I didn't notice what I was becoming. If only to be alive for one day. But I don't know how. He has decided to grasp life, and we have to admire him for it. I'll tell you my secret nickname for you. Mr. Zombie. Mr. what? Sort of dead, but not dead. It's really good. <laughs> it's time to live a little. Living. Adapted from the Kurosawa film Ikaru, itself inspired by the Russian novella The Death of Ivan Ilyich by Tolstoy, Living sees Bill Nye playing the part of Rodney Williams, a bureaucrat in 1953 who's diagnosed with a fatal illness. Mr. Williams has always been somewhat emotionally detached, a perfect prim and proper gentleman, not only to his colleagues at the public works department, but also to his family. Somewhat detached emotionally, he takes the news of his impending demise poorly and initially plots to end his life on his own means via a fatal overdose. However, unable to go through with the task, he ends up giving the sleeping medicine to Mr. Sutherland, an insomniac he meets in a restaurant, telling him his story. Mr. Sutherland introduces Mr. Williams to the nightlife of the town and gives him a chance to discover the joys of life after decades of only living to work. Living is a beautifully moving film about life and connections with those around us and the impact we can make on those lives through even the smallest of gestures. Through Mr. Williams, who has never really lived, we get to see the small effects of his sudden break of character and also the larger impression he resultantly makes when he stops being the bureaucrat for once. Nye delivers a grounded performance, making it impossible to not connect with Williams, even in his earlier scenes of distant emotion. The support cast, who by way of the story are actually more central than Nye, all deliver, with Amy Lou Wood, Alex Sharp and Tom Berg having the largest impressions on us, each of them connecting with different aspects of Mr. Williams's character. It's set in the 50s. It's shot and presented like a 50s film. The whole style evokes the era perfectly, right down to the font choice for the titles. Living is an emotional tale done well and a fine example of how to adapt another work and yet make it feel fresh once more. So next up, we've got my review of Luther Fallen Son, which landed on Netflix this week. Detective Superintendent Shank. We need to know where he is. Look, I know he's in prison. Except he's not in prison. Of course he's not. He promised me he could help. You know what they did to my son. I need to stop this man. I'm still a copper. Not anymore. And if you refuse to stand down, tactical unit will shoot you dead. <laughs> Something's coming. John, I looked you right in the eye. Because I was curious. I wanted to know if you'd see it in me. Because that is who you are, isn't it? 
the man who knows all about people like me. Neil Cross's smash hit BBC TV crime drama now gets its own standalone feature film, again with Idris Elba returning as the troubled London police detective John Luther. And it basically continues the story from the end of the fifth season. And it's one of those films that, yes, you can get away with it just if you didn't follow the series, but this is aimed at its fan base. So you've got Elba returning as Luther. You've also got supporting cast, which includes the great Cynthia Erivo, Ati Mohanrahan, and Andy Serkin as the film's villain. In fact, he's a villain that just seems to be plucked straight out of a 1980s action movie with probably one of the most ridiculous haircuts that I think (laughs) I've ever seen. So Luther has been sent to jail for many of his misdeeds he did as a police detective. But he's still taking on fighting crime when a serial killer, played by Andy Serkis, is blackmailing people with the secret online shames of their past. And when Luther breaks out of prison, he goes on a deadly hunt for the killer, trying to evade arrest and trying to save a young boy. Idris Elba has got so much screen presence. He did in Luther. It was a fantastic role. And he brings that role to the feature film. Andy Serkis is a bit of a peculiar villain whose most horrific crime is his blow-dried hair and his leering grin. So much so that he looks sort of like an 80s game show host. If you've not watched Luther, then this is not a place to start. You'll feel completely lost. In fact, if you're a fan, you may be likely to be confused by the revamp of the story. It's okay. It's entertaining. Idris Elba is a great screen presence and he brings his best to the role of the worn down detective who's somehow deep into a crime. But the rest of it feels like we've done this before. The ideas of digital paranoia, the dark web, our perverted secrets, our secret life online just kind of passes by. You might enjoy it. It will feel familiar. And it really only plays in as a bit of fan service. I've never watched Luther. It was a good series, Andy. It was well worth seeing. Uh, It just proves that Idris Elba is a great screen presence. It went Mm. in places that you didn't expect it to. It got a lot broader with its scope than you'd expect it to. But this this just feels like we've seen it all before. It it feels to me like one of those 80s thrillers, a bit like Russell McKay's Ricochet and those kind of films where you've got an exceedingly over-the-top villain and you've got your beat-down lead detective. Uh, It just kind of feels... The worst I can call it is recycled. Let's move on to the hotly anticipated return of everyone's favourite bounty hunter. This week saw the return of our favourite helmeted Star Wars figure. Yes, the Mandalorian, before you thought it was anyone else. Being a Mandalorian is not just learning about how to fight. The creed is how we survived. What are we? This is the way. Hang on, kid. This is the way. This is the way. The Mandalorian, Season 3, Wednesday, only on Disney+. So, Mando returns 
big budget returns to Disney Plus, Favreau returns. It just felt like a great return to me. Yeah, opening with that whole tribe doing the inducting of a youngling into the Mandalorian tribe, interrupted by a giant dinosaur turtle crocodile thing. <laughs> I think that's the best way to describe it. Giant dinosaur turtle crocodile thing. And from that scene, it just hit the ground running because that was just beautifully put together, action-packed, and then Din Djarin just arriving and just blowing it to shreds with uh, entrails of a giant crocodile splattering all over the front. And it set out its stable quite early on with this. It's like, you know what? Mando's accepted what he's doing. He's got a quest to do this season, but we're going to have fun with it. And it's going to be bloody and brutal at times. And I was in. I know I've seen criticisms online that the dialogue is pretty bad. Hey, have you seen Star Wars? Yeah, this is Star Wars. I, I don't care that dialogue's bad because this has just reminded me, after we had that mess of Book of Boba Fett that was only salvaged by the Mandalorian coming into it towards the end of it, and even then it didn't salvage it enough, I was worried that maybe that it would run out of steam. But this first episode of season three has brought me back on board straight away and drawn me straight in. I still don't know whether we need IG-11 brought back. Yeah. Come on. Is it just an excuse to get Taiki Watiti back involved because he's a fan favourite? Probably, because it doesn't seem to make sense story-wise at this point in time. But I'm on board. I'm on board for this slice of fun. I think you hit the nail on the head, Andy. It's a slice of fun. It's, mm. It is just that. It delivers just solid entertainment on a TV budget. Okay, it's a Disney Plus TV budget, so anything can happen. But it is just fun. I, I, I'm never bored. I love the characters. I love the world building. It is just it's just a lot of fun. I don't want any more from it than that. I got that, a deeper look into the Star Wars universe with Andor, which, uh, as I said, blew me away. This is what where I go to be entertained for 45 minutes. We got the stopgap where he basically helps Karga stop a group of pirates that have been attacking this new civilization that he's trying to cultivate and stop from being the pirate haven's downtrodden town and become something a bit more respectable. And it was just side plots. There's no major bad being revealed yet. There's nothing big being signposted. But all that we know is that this season is going to, it's basically his attempt to redeem himself and bathe himself in the waters beneath their home world, which apparently is out of bounds. There's got to be a mystery in there. There's got to be something. We don't know much about what's coming up, but all that it did was it absolutely had me grinning from ear to ear from that opening scene right up to the closing moments after the exchange that he'd had with Bo-Katan, who, again, marvellously portrayed by Katie Sackhoff. I'm hoping to see more of her later on in the season. I, I've just got to throw in Pedro Pascal. He is he's lording it in, in genre TV with this and his almost simultaneously appearance on The Last of Us. He has become the guider of children. Have you noticed that? That is his character yes. trait now. He guides children on quests. Um, it's his voice, that sort of Clint Eastwood-esque voice, and, um, and body language and mannerisms that, that make him just so cool in a way that he's so cool in The Last of Us. Uh, he's just great at playing surrogate fathers. Yeah, Mandalorian is everything that Star Wars should be for me. It's fun. It's lively. It's got hu wry humour in there. It's got great action. And it's just got a solid cast. We'll talk about more of The Mandalorian as we go through the season. But what else is out over the next week? So at cinemas this week, the big film on release is definitely not Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, which uh, you might be able to find scraping some screens in some cinemas for some reason. But the big film 
is obviously Scream 6, which I have high on my radar to watch. I loved what the last film delivered, and now we're finally getting out of Woodsboro and going to the big city with it. Is this going to be Jason Does Manhattan, or can they actually avoid that failing of that Friday the 13th franchise? Well, we'll find out next week. Also coming to cinemas this week is 65, the Adam Driver versus Dinosaurs sci-fi adventure. Over on Now TV and Sky, where the Crow Dad singles this week, as does Emily the Criminal. Netflix, Lee spoke about it in his review, Luther the Fallen Son lands properly this week, and the Clove Hitch Killer also lands. Over on Amazon, had fun watching it, Godzilla vs. Kong lands on there this week. Generally, that's it for a roundup. So it's it's all about Scream 6 for me next week. I'll tell you what I'm really looking forward to is 65. Can't wait for that one. Yeah, we've got quite a good few weeks of something more or less every week ahead of us at the cinema. It's a case of having to rush out and watch them as quick as possible. Otherwise, they're going to be a huge backlog. And that's it for this week's show. But of course, before we go, it's time for our neat things. What's the neat thing? Well, as long as Andy and I have enjoyed it, whether it's a film, a game, a meal, you name it, it's a neat thing. Andy, what's your neat thing for this week? This was a tough choice because there's two things that I wanted to bring as a neat thing this week. And both of them have got up to the third episode and become absolutely unmissable for me. But I'm going to go for, I mentioned it last week as something new that was landed on Amazon, Daisy Jones and the Six. Now, this is a drama about a rock band in the 70s. Their rise to fame in the LA music scene to becoming one of the most famous bands in the world. And it explores the reason behind their split. The first episode opens with interviews with this fake band in the present day as they're recounting that their last gig that they did before they split and then it backtracks to go through and it does the talking head interviews throughout it so it gives it an almost documentary style as well as the dramatical approach and it just taps into the energy of the 70s the music of the 70s the vibe the whole thing it's adapted from the book Daisy Jones and the Six by Taylor Jenkins Reid, who was inspired by stories of Fleetwood Mac. And you can see that essence in there. Here's a band that's dysfunctional. Here's a band that don't really work together. But when they're on stage, boy, they work together. And it's packed with a cast that are just so perfectly placed. Riley Keough as Daisy Jones herself. Sam Claffin as Billy Dunn. Timothy Oliphant's in there as Rod Rees, who's a, a marketing manager. Tom Wright as the label producer, Teddy Price. It feels like you're watching a documentary, but you know you're watching a fun drama. And three episodes in, it landed last week with the first three episodes, and now I've got to wait week on week. And boy, I can't wait for episode four, because by the end of the first episode, I was hooked. By the end of the third episode, I am bought into these lives. Daisy Jones and the Six is on Amazon Prime. Get on to that. For my neat thing, and I, I fell into this quite by accident. I just happened to be strolling through the uh, wonderlands that is YouTube, and I came across Letters Live. Have you heard about this, Andy? I've not heard of Letters Live. Okay, it's a theatrical realisation of the famous books Letters of No, a best-selling anthology compiled by Sean Usher, and To the Letter by Simon Garfield. And it's basically a starry lineup of actors, writers, activists, and others who stand up on stage and recite famous letters letters, some from history's notable luminaries alongside touching correspondence from, from regular people. It was a live event. It features such people as Taiki Waititi, 
Olivia Coleman, Sharon Horgan, so, so many. It's beautifully done. Sometimes they're very witty. The Taiki Watiti one is very, very funny. Some are incredibly sad, but they're all beautiful. And it was one of those moments that you go down the YouTube rabbit hole. You start watching one and then you're drawn to another and then another and another. And it is just a, a, a fabulous, fabulous 10 minutes that you will spend just listening to these thespians and these these uh, performers just reading out just letters it's as simple as that that's the beauty of it it is the simplicity of it beautifully well done fantastic if there is a 2003 event and you don't know who the celebrities are until it happens i i would love to go absolutely marvelous and that's letters live and you can find that on youtube and that folks Well, that's us done for this week. I managed to make it through, but I've left Andy a huge amount of edits to do. I'm proud of you. You got there. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't think, you know, at one point, Andy, I thought this is all over. I'm going to crawl back into bed. (laughs) But no, we made it to the end. Anything planned for this week? I'm just chilling out. I I didn't want to plan anything for, even though it's been my 50th birthday, I didn't want to have big plans and extravagant things because I always end up not feeling the vibe on the day. So I'm just taking everything as it comes. Probably do some board games at some point. But I'm just generally just relaxing and catch up on things. I am, however, also working through the Lord of the Rings in 4K because I got them as a birthday present. Wow, that sounds awesome. And I'm also re-watching Twin Peaks The Return. There's a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoyed it, but boy, it was a bit of a challenge. Yes. Watching it through again is opening my eyes to some things that I hadn't caught the caught the lynchism subtext properly the first time round so it is one of those things that benefits from that second time viewing but there's a lot of episodes to go and I might be in a a weird headspace by the end of it we'll see (laughs) we'll be back again next week but in the meantime are you the person inside of Regan welcome to the film file and I am Jack's film geek (laughs) what Why did you not have that when we did uh, Fight Club? I don't know. Why Why, why have you waited until this week? (laughs) (laughs) I think that's our first comic book one. Um, We we did have Killmonger. Oh, yeah. Ignore that one then. Edit that one out. (laughs) Don't make me look stupid. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It'll be on the outtakes. (laughs) There was a grisly hard on there. I was going to say hard on their asses. <laughs> yeah. You've got to go really hard on. <laughs> Who's been found? Because <laughs> if you say Zack Snyder. <laughs> oh, I won't carry on then. <laughs> I remember your mother sucks cocks. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going to go for that one. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>